We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Brew Hoop Podcast, episode 67. I'm Adam Paris, co managing editor of brewhoop.com, back after a long, long, wonderful time away out west where Kyle and Riley were nice enough to keep the podcast going. All the episodes were fantastic. I don't feel like I missed any second of meaningful basketball while I was away due to the bubble games, but uh, I, I'm so glad that Kyle and Riley were here to break it down. And today I'm, I'm only joined by by Kyle Carr. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing pretty well, um, all things considered. It was a decent week of basketball and a decent week of sports. It's still weird having all of these sports like basketball and soccer and now baseball's back, like having it all during the day, especially. So sitting at home, it's like, well, what sport is on that I could watch? It's kind of nice. It's one of the per. I if there's any good thing about this pandemic, it worked from home. It's I can watch sports from the comfort of my own home. Is soccer number one on your on your list? Is that on oh, yeah. number one? Okay, that's the first thing I look for. Is, okay, what soccer matches on? And then if the Bucks aren't playing, then NBA falls to number two. Do you put on baseball? I'm not. I used to be a big baseball fan, and I'm not. I haven't put it on really at all this year. I don't think I've watched a single minute of a brewer game yet. Okay. I, I just can't do it. <laughs> it's too boring. And, and like the games are at night. And by then it's like, I'm tired. I just want to hang out with my wife. I just want to sleep or something. It baseball's too boring for me to do it. Maybe I'll put it on radio one day, but no, I've watched a minute of the brewer season. I think that's for the best. Yeah. It, it kind of sounds like it. Uh, pour one out for all the brewers fans out there, but um, also baseball kind of feels once I started hearing about all the games getting canceled due to the COVID testing, I was like, I'm just going to eject your seat out of paying any attention to this this season. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the day it says, okay, there's no baseball season's canceled. I'll be like, yeah, that's <laughs> about two months overdue, but all right. Yeah. Uh, and as you can tell, Riley is not with us today. Riley is uh, preparing for a move. So he's he's packing his stuff up. I'm sure he's he's laying out all of his fountain pens, maybe polishing them, putting them back in their cases. Uh, it, as someone who has had to move every year for the past nine years. I, I do not uh, envy you, Riley, for what you're about to do. So <laughs> I hope it's I hope it's going well. Yeah, I have not moved since 2017, and I'm planning on keeping it that way as long as I can. <laughs> oh God, this is it. So this is the first year I won't have to move since I like went to college, and I am so 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 excited to not have to pack up all my stuff again. Is it worse? What is worse, packing or unpacking? Uh, I think packing, I think packing because I, I realize all of the crap I have that I don't want and I still pack it up. Um, there's like something and it's like, I'm kind of like leaving something behind and there's all the, the, the house like feels depressing when it's packed up too. But when you get into a new place, I feel more excited to like unpack and kind of get the stuff together. 
Yeah, I feel like with packing, it's more, okay, what do I keep? How do I get it into this box? How do I pack all of it? Yeah, it's definitely more the how do I manage to do it all? While unpacking, it's just where do I put it? Where do I put it is a lot easier than how am I going to get in this box in the first place. Yeah, 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 totally true. So I'm sure Riley's enjoying that. I'm sure he feels the same. So enjoy your packing, Riley. <laughs> uh, but uh, we've got some Bucks games to talk about. It's finally the playoffs. We finally have meaningful games. Uh, the Bucks are, we're recording this for context, we're recording this on Sunday, so it's a day after the Bucks game three win, which was, uh, I would say, sorely needed, Kyle, given uh, the state of affairs, both for the Bucks in the bubble, and especially after game one, which they lost uh, 122 to 110. Bit of a, I don't know if it was a, sh- I don't know if it was a shocker. Did you think it was a shocker? Yes and no. I think with game one, the result and the game itself was not surprising because the Bucks hadn't, and I, the Bucks have not shown any consistency in the bubble and all of the flaws that happened and all the things that went wrong for the Bucks in game one, we had seen throughout in the bubble. So it wasn't necessarily shocking that it happened again. I think maybe it was in the manner that it did. Because, sure, you can chalk it up to you know, low intensity and these games didn't matter when it came to the bubble seeding games. But this was game one of the playoffs. And the fact that it was game one and they still didn't have the urgency and they were out hustled and it, they just didn't bring the same intensity. That was I think that was more shocking to me. It was the lack of intensity and the lack of urgency that was present in game one. Not necessarily Orlando hitting shots because I think in the first half, at least Milwaukee defensively was doing an okay enough job. Markel Fultz and Nikola Vucevic were hitting mid-range jumpers, and those are the kind of shots that you're okay with them taking. Um, you know, there were a couple threes that were contested. So it wasn't defensively that was the problem. Offensively, it was a mess. And the same issues that popped up in the bubble, too many turnovers and poor shooting from mostly everyone was – yeah, it was just one of those where the play itself didn't surprise me, but the intensity and the urgency that they didn't have was shocking. Yeah, I was. I mean, having missed most of the most of the bubble games, I wasn't quite as tuned into the you know vagaries of the team during those those eight games. So I was, I was coming into it kind of fresh, thinking like, okay, well, it's the playoffs; they'll ratchet it up here. That's what they do every year. Um, so that was kind of a, I, I think you're right on with the, the intensity being the shocking part, especially given they came out last year and just like absolutely housed the Pistons, uh, from the very outset. I feel like, cause I rem- I feel like there was a stat even in the playoffs last year where the Bucks trailed for an incredibly small amount of time throughout like the first two rounds, like they were constantly ahead. And that's what, that was what was shocking about the Orlando game, game one. Yeah, it was. And I think last year, cause they trailed maybe at most a minute or two in the Detroit series. And then obviously the Celtics game, um, game one, that was yeah. its own. And that ended up being an anomaly for the first two rounds. And this one, it was Milwaukee started off. Okay. And I think that's also been a consistent theme in the bubble is Milwaukee starting off pretty well, hitting a couple shots, getting a rhythm. You think, okay, this team is going to go. They're going to be able to get it right from the beginning. And then Orlando gets his first run. They take a lead. And it seemed like once the Bucks were down, they could not find a way to get back in. And I think it was the same thing as the Nets game. And then I think another one of the games where Milwaukee was just incapable of getting two or three consecutive stops on the defensive end. And then on offense, it seemed like every time they were getting a little bit of steam, 
they would fall apart. And in game one, especially Giannis had absolutely no help from anyone. Eric Bledsoe had like a two minute stretch at the beginning of the third quarter. That was pretty good. But otherwise everyone was bad. Like Brooke Lopez was really, really poor. Chris Middleton was poor for the first two games. And thankfully game three seems to have gotten out of that rut. The bench did not contribute to anything. So game one was just Giannis trying to do it all on his own. And while Giannis wasn't perfect, he there's only so much that you can do when you're him and you know the two other highest paid players aren't showing up. And the fact that Eric Bledsoe was probably the second best buck. And again, he only had two minutes of good play. It's a little bit concerning <laughs> at that recurrence. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think looking at this series now, I mean, it, it shifts. It can shift so wildly from game to game. But now we kind of have the game one, the horrific play. Game two, one eleven to ninety six win. But we all kind of, I, I would say, most close Bucks watchers all kind of caught chalked that up to a absolutely horrendous shooting night from Orlando. Not necessarily completely reliant on the Bucks defense, um, and then also. Then in, in game three, obviously, we kind of have the Bucks finally looking like themselves. So it's sort of a, a, a gradual increase to where we we believe that the Bucks playing like they usually are. So game three, it's a one twenty one to one oh seven win. Giannis has thirty five points, eleven rebounds, seven assists. He's twelve of fourteen from the floor, nine to twelve from the free throw line. An absolutely dominating performance from him. Uh, gets tons of help from his supporting cast, Middleton. Looks a little bit more like himself, finally. 17 points, 8 rebounds, 6 assists. Um, just 7 of 17 from the field, though. Brooke with 16 points. And then Eric Bledsoe, 14 points, 8 assists. Uh, I, I mean, I think off. I, I think on both sides of the floor, we saw the Bucks look a lot more like their regular season selves. They, they pushed the ball in, in transition and were able to get easy baskets. In the half court, their offense looked far more fluid than it did in the first couple games where it seemed like they didn't really have any idea about how to crack the Orlando shell. And then uh, I, I do think more importantly, it did feel like there was a consensus that defensively uh, the team, even if they didn't have technically game two had a better defensive rating uh, given Orlando's awful shooting night game three, I would say was definitely the defining game in terms of the Bucks playoffs so far. Uh, and I think their defense led the charge. Yeah. I think this was Milwaukee's best performance in the bubble with game three and a good chunk of that was defensively they were active I think they decided you know what we're just going to let Vucevic get 30 points and that's going to happen and that's okay but make sure that the other four players on the court can't hurt you because in the first in game one it was Vucevic I was hurting you then it was Markel Fultz and then Terrence Rock everyone except Evan Fournier was able to chip in at some point but in game two it was you know everyone on Orlando missing shots and now game three it was we're still going to let Vucevic get all the points that he wants. We can live with him taking pick and pop threes, kind of similar to Al Horford, where if he hits two or three, it's not ideal, but you can live with it. It's making sure that Fournier and Terrence Ross had a couple moments of hitting shots. DJ Augustine had a couple moments, but I would notice, especially in the, I think it was the second half where Vucevic would get the ball and Milwaukee would aggressively double him. But it was still a smart double because they could have someone, the whoever's guarding the player in the corner, they could just step in, kind of put their use their arms, at least take out the passing lane and be able to get back to their player. Um, so that was, I think, defensively, I wouldn't say the intensity. I, I would say the intensity was the same as it was in game two, but it was more in a controlled manner. I think game two was still a little over aggressive and a 
a little over helping while in game three it was smart helping smart doubles not anything that could leave too many open shots from the perimeter or the corner so it was defensively yeah i would say defensively and offensively it was the best performance monkeys put in the bubble um offensively in the half court it just helps when you're hitting shots you know i think chris middleton hitting a couple shots was good west matthews Chipping in with a couple threes. We haven't seen that all series. Um, Pat Connaughton was still shooting the ball really well, and he deserves a big shout-out for his game two shooting performance. Um, Brooke Lopez was able to get going, and Giannis getting all the baskets at the rim. I think I saw a stat that Milwaukee was at 1.19 to 20 from shots around four feet of the rim. And in game two, that was a little bit of a struggle for them. You know, Giannis was missing a couple bunnies, and game three, they were able to hit them all. So with the efficient, the high efficiency around the rib and shooting for once at a good clip from three, it made the offense and the it made the offense look a lot better. And them getting out in transition was a lot was helpful as well, and not turning the ball over. You know how many times in game one did we see Giannis or Bledsoe do their patent mid air pass that was wildly chaotic and ends up either in the what would have been the fourth row of the stands in a normal stadium. Probably hit a virtual fan in the screen now, but it's just, it was good to see Milwaukee put it all together. And this time they didn't give Orlando hope. I think at one point they're up 30. That was, they were consistently up 20 points in the second half. And that's, that is something that we have not seen is Milwaukee just be ahead and stay ahead. And even if the other team went on a mini run, the lead only went down to, you know, 16 or 17 points, Milwaukee could get right back up to 20, 25. Yeah, snuffing out any chance of Orlando coming back was something they certainly didn't do in game two. It, it felt like there was opportunities there when Orlando was, you know, essentially missing every single shot in existence. And they just couldn't seem to create that insurmountable 30-point lead like they did in game three. Uh, the Giannis dominating inside has been it, – it's been really strange to watch the first two games. It reminded me a lot of um, – I think it was the the Philly Christmas game where – he was getting into the paint, but he just couldn't quite finish. He had a bunch of bunnies that he would just miss. Um, and it's just so strange to make that analogy because Orlando and it, Orlando doesn't have any sort of semblance of rim protection. Like they, they, Vucevic is not a rim protector. Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon are out. Like there's theoretically no reason that Giannis should be missing those shots, but he just wasn't, wasn't quite getting the bounces. It looked like, I think I looked up, he was 15 of 31 at the rim uh, through the first two games, basically went 10 of 10 from the around the rim in game three. So ups his average a lot more. So him finishing around the rim is, is, is paramount both to the Bucks success and, and dominating in the paint against the magic, but then also getting himself going because there's no one on the magic who can match him. Um, I, I do want to loop back to what you said about the defense. I think you made, I think you summed it up perfectly by saying it was just as intense as game two, but it was in a much more controlled manner. I think you made great points that there you know, a second helper was coming in and, and maybe just getting his hand in on Vucevic. You know, maybe they were tagging the role man a little bit better, but still helping out to their man on the defender. Uh, there was just, it seemed like the Bucks were communicating a lot better. There was like a lot more symbiosis between all of the defenders. They seemed to know, hey, if if my guy rolls in and I can't tag him, they seemed to have a lot better communication on when they were switching. And they don't always switch, but um, Bud's been doing that a little bit more, it feels like, when you know, the Magic are getting a little penetration inside. It seems like overall the communications was so much better. 
Um, and it led to, you know, it led to steals and, and runouts too. I think the Bucks, it looked like they had, you know, 25 points off turnovers against the Magic, which was obviously not the case. Um, it was sort of the reverse case in game one when the Magic were taking advantage of the Bucks gaffes. Yeah, and it seems like at the same time, the rim protection being good was helpful because in game one, you can, I, I get that Vucevic is a very large human and can get whatever points he wants in the post. But it still felt like everyone was able to get to the hoop. Like Markel Fultz was able to get to the hoop. Everyone's like consistently, you know, DJ Augusty was able to get to the hoop. Um, who's that? Quinn. No, not Quinn. The one that just got ejected for the punch. Oh, James <laughs> Ennis? Yeah, James Ennis. I felt like he was able to get some dribble drives to the hoop. And it felt like the rim protection wasn't there in game one. In game two, I, I, I chalk up game two as a very bad shooting night if Orlando shoots half as well that they did, then at least it's maybe a single-digit win for Milwaukee. It, it, Milwaukee very much benefited from an opponent finally not shooting well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in game three, the run protection was there. Brooke and Giannis were the key guys. But, you know, we see Dante DiVincenzo get a couple blocks in. We see... You know, Marvin Williams, when he was in that game, be able to stop the dribble drives. We see even Robin Lopez, when he came in for a moment, he was able to at least contest the shots at the rim. And I think that was something that when Milwaukee's defense is at its best is when they can protect the rim and not necessarily keep you out of the paint. But if you're going to try a paint shot, you're going to have to go with a super athletic, acrobatic style layup, or you're going to have to throw a floater up, up there and those aren't really, other than Markel Fultz, no magic player can really do that. So limiting the just layups and second chance points, um, yeah, I think that was just defensively, that was the Milwaukee that we had seen before the pandemic had happened. A hundred percent. And, there, you know, the guards driving in was really, I was I was kind of flabbergasted by how often like DJ Augustine and, and Fultz and those guys, their wing players who aren't that great. We're finishing at the rim, um, especially contrasted with, with someone like Dante DiVincenzo, who still doesn't quite seem like he's playing the, at the same level. He was in the regular season. I think there was some encouraging stuff in game three, whether it was, you know, cuts to the basket. Um, it, it really does seem like I, the curious thing to me about Dante is it seemed like he maybe had a little on ball potential, but it has felt like in the bubble, he's been pretty reckless with the ball, turning it over a lot. Uh, and if he's going to make any of those plays, he had that, he had that play in game three where he like, it was on the pick and roll and he split the pick and roll and was able to get in for a layup. But other than that, he's felt like he's had a lot of trouble doing anything on the ball in the bubble. And it's weird because at first I just figured they're forcing him to be the ball handler with Eric Bledsoe out and you only have George Hill mm-hmm. and well, Frank Mason could be a good option. It's not really the best option. You might as well just see if Dante can, can do it. And it's more with Dante. It seems like Dante can be a ball handler, but he shouldn't be the ball handler. Dante <laughs> can do things, but he necessarily shouldn't because it doesn't, it's not playing up to his best skill set. His best skill set is his off the ball cutting and hopefully his shooting before the pandemic, because that was starting to improve at least. And then once he got to the bubble, it seems to have fallen off a cliff again. But it, it's more the off-ball stuff that Dante does that is a strength, and it, you kind of take it away by forcing him to be the ball handler. It, yes, he got that split in the pick and roll, and you know the funny thing is we've seen Dante get to the hoop. 
he just can't seem to finish the layups. And I think that is kind of the difference between a player that's maybe confident or a player that is in more of a rhythm because he had a plenty of looks in game two to get to the hoop and he just couldn't finish them. Um, so I don't know. I try and, I try and figure out what, how much of the Dante stuff is more. And he's also played with all bench units, which does not help a lot because I mean, there's really no other, there's no goal to score in the bench unit. It's kind of hoping that George Hill and Kyle, George Hill might hit a three and get a dribble drive. Kyle Corver hitting a three, Pat Connaughton hitting threes, you know, Marvin Williams, it's reliant on other players hitting their shots, and then there's no penetration to their hoop. And I think that's where Dante felt like he had to be that guy when really with the all bench unit, it's kind of just more don't screw it up too badly while Giannis and Chris are on the bench. <laughs> 100%. Any game three, the other big thing, I guess, from game three, quote unquote, big was Mar- when Marvin Williams and James Ennis get into a, a you know, a brouhaha. I think it was in the second quarter. I think yeah, it was the second. It was right before halftime. So yeah, yeah. Darvin Ham gets in there, uh, tries to break it up, um, gets thrown to the floor by by James Ennis, um, and then both of them are eventually ejected uh, and tossed from the game. Significantly more damaging to the Magic, of course, as James Ennis has kind of been up in Chris Middleton's shirt uh, and jersey the entire series. Um, I don't know. I was kind of surprised. I didn't know Marvin was that fiery of a guy, but it kind of seemed like it kind of, I was a little surprised they both got ejected, but yeah, I had said on Twitter, I am not surprised that the ref called it because the second a, a punch was thrown, you're probably going to get ejected. And Marvin was the one that I wouldn't say started it, but he was the one that did the shoving first. And he's also the one that's grabbing James Ennis's Jersey. And while Marvin is more calm at that point, once you kind of start it and grab the Jersey and James Ennis has to throw a punch to, let have you let go then i understand where the refs are coming from i personally would not have ejected them i think a double tech would have been perfectly fine um darvin Hab being in the middle of it does not surprise me at all because he looks like the type of guy that would want to be in the middle of it <laughs> um it definitely hurt yeah but it hurts the magic a lot more because milton had not been playing well in the first two games and most of that was because of James Ennis and while Middleton was starting to get going in the second quarter even when James Ennis was in it seemed like after that happened I want to say it sucked the life out of the magic but it, whatever hope they had of at the very least hoping that Chris Middleton would do well went out the window they didn't have a necessarily they didn't have the guy to step in and kind of fill in that role of guarding Middleton it seemed like that was James Ennis's job and James Ennis's job only Ken Burge, when he's in, he's most likely guarding Giannis. There are times where Middleton was playing the backup four in the second half after Marvin got ejected, and Orlando didn't have an answer for that. I think if Eric Gordon was healthy, then you can maybe throw Ken Burge on Middleton, but we don't know when him or Michael Carter-Williams are coming back, and I can see Michael Carter-Williams maybe trying his best to do it as well. So it was – I didn't expect Marvin Williams to be that type of guy, but it's the playoffs, and he – if I'm getting shoved and elbowed and I'm probably it kind of like the same thing with Giannis. At some point you're going to snap. And thankfully for Marvin, he didn't throw any punches. I don't think he'll face a suspension. I think he'll probably get a fine if that. I don't know if James Ennis will get a suspension or not because he is the one that threw the punch. And thankfully it didn't hit the ref, because if it if it had hit the ref, then we're probably not seeing James Ennis the rest of the series. Yeah. 
I, I I would I hope he doesn't get suspended just for the Magic fans' sake. They they need some players, man. They are the, yeah. I, Gary Gary Clark doesn't shouldn't have to guard Giannis again. That was really really. Impressive. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, there's two things, two more things I wanted to talk about from Game Three um, and something from the series in general before we get into some concerns that I have that I want to run by you. Um, Giannis. We talked about his domination inside, but he's been, I, I was looking it up before and it felt like he's been, they've been using him a lot more in the pick and roll. Stan Van Gundy called it out yesterday too on the broadcast, how when the Bucks are using him as a role man, he is, he's been incredibly efficient and he, he was okay at that this year. He doesn't do it that often, but it looked like in the regular season, you know, he would do the, he would play the role man about 6% of his plays, very small amount, but that's up to like 12% in the playoffs so far. So small sample size, but twice as much so far as in the regular season. Um, I really like that look for the bucks. I like it. Um, especially leading to some of the Brook corner threes that he's been getting. He's been able to hit those as a pretty good clip. And usually we don't see him spaced out there. Usually he's more of an above the break shooter. So I think that's been working real, really well for the bucks to try and get some space. And I also think, um, you know, Giannis can obviously dominate and catch the ball and, you know, do his Euro step and one step in catching it off the roll. Um, but it just opens him up to, I think a lot more options, kind of like a super side, like Draymond green, like what the warriors would do where, you know, the magic are going to have to make an option. Are they going to throw a bunch of people in to stop Giannis, um, from scoring right, you know, right then and there, um, or are they going to try and take their chances and, and stay out by the Bucks shooters and, and make them, you know, try and prevent them from beating them. And I, I think it's, I think it's a nice way to allow Giannis to do the stuff he would normally do in the Bucks five out offense without forcing him to like have to get by his guy and like drive in and, and dribble. So I, I think it alleviates some of that pressure from him. Yeah. And I think it just also takes the possibility of defenders being able to try and take a charge as well. Um, I think when Giannis has a full head of steam and he's heading towards his hoop, you're not necessarily going to stop him, so you have to throw your body in front of him and hope that he draws an offensive foul. And now when he's the role man, it kind of takes that option away. And we saw it a little bit with Kyle Korver, where at the second, if the ball handler is someone that can shoot, you don't, and Kyle Korver has a quick enough trigger that he doesn't need to do a lot of dribbling. He just needs to get one or two dribbles so that the, his guy is screened by Giannis and Kyle Korver can get that shot off. Or when you have Eric Bledsoe, he's also someone that can get a full head of steam and if the defense collapses, he can either dump it off the Giannis and Giannis can get an easy dunk or layup. He can kick it out to the corner where that's been Brooke and Wes Matthews lately. He can go back to above the break where Chris Middleton has been. So it does create more for Milwaukee. And I think for Giannis' sake, it's probably less taxing as well because he's not having to go full out. I mean, he still goes full out, but he doesn't have to try and move his body in five different directions when he's dribbling the ball. He doesn't have to try and Euro step as frequently to get past someone or do a spin move into a wall. He can just, he can get the ball kind of stand over it. And it's almost like running a high post in a zone where you can get the ball. You, you get the ball with your back face or who pivot and you have three or four options in front of you. You can pass to the left corner, pass the right corner, go take a jump shot. If you want and go to the rim. So I think with the being the role man, it kind of, re-highlights that it allows him to assess his options and even if he doesn't have the ball he can at least look and see what the next pass is going to be because he has that intelligence he has that ability where he can get the ball like Bledsoe can give him the ball and he can look and say okay Brooks in the corner so the second I get the ball I'm going to just grab it and immediately fire it off to Brooke 
Brooke can get a corner three, or I know I can get I can get a layup, or I can draw a foul. So I think it's, with the him being the role man, it's something that we don't see that often, and I don't know if that's just Bud intentionally trying not to give too much game film on it, or if it is by design. But that might be something that in the next couple rounds, if Milwaukee gets that far, that's where. I hope the changes from what they learned last year against Toronto come into play because then you can look at this is another option. And we talk about the honest Chris pick and roll, and that's been something that we haven't seen that much in the playoffs. And I wonder how maybe that's a breaking case of emergency with the offense when the five out system doesn't work, but it is something that it should be utilized a little bit more. I think it benefits everyone. And it also conserves Giannis's energy a little bit more. Yeah, I, I feel like during that the Warriors run where they had KD and Steph, people were always kind of clamoring for like more KD Steph pick and rolls, but that just like wasn't really a staple of the Warriors offense. But you know, I, I think seeing Giannis being used in the pick and roll a little more, seeing Brooke spaced out to the corners, even Brooke has been used as a role man quite a bit. I feel like I've been seeing him catch a catch a lot more, like going inside, making his one pivot move. Uh, he's just really smooth down there. I, you know, we talk a lot about but not making adjustments. I actually feel like he's been making like a lot of smaller tweaks in this series. I mean, you know, they started out game two, it didn't last forever, but like immediately they were switching on defense, um, you know, and they weren't doing that the whole game, but it's at least another look that they have to think about. Um, they've been using Giannis in the pick and roll. Um, I mean, I don't really like the all bench lineups that he goes to, but I looked up the numbers and somehow they're freaking destroying teams with it. Um, it's working, I guess. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I feel like he has been doing like a couple of different looks and small tweaks throughout this. And then, um, you know, in game one, they just were not playing with the intensity and level that they needed game two. Those things weren't super successful either, but um, I, I've appreciated seeing a little bit of diversity from him. That'll hopefully, like you said, pay dividends in the future rounds. Yeah. But has definitely done adjustments as, as they might not be the drastic adjustments, like going to switching, but yeah. it's still the small tweaks here and there that, it might not pay, and it might not be the large things, and might not be the noticeable things, but he seems to be adjusting. I think his rotations have been a little bit better in at least in game two. It was a lot better. Game three was a little bit of a crapshoot just because Milwaukee was so far ahead that he was able to give more of a leash with the bench unit just to hope that they don't screw it up. But in game two, at least, he his rotations were a little bit better. He seemed to stagger Giannis and Chris a little bit more. He seemed to make sure that Giannis was on the floor and Kyle Korver was also on the floor, which is something that wasn't really present in game one. So I think his rotations at the very least have been the one change that I've noticed that have been different. And yeah, those switching every once in a while and pick and rolls are, I think, a little, those are little wrinkles that I think he's throwing in there just because maybe he's giving the players a little bit more freedom of, we got to figure something out. So go figure it out. 100%. So, one last thing before we do concerns. I just want to highlight Eric Bledsoe, who I think has gone really under the radar in this series, but in seasons past has obviously been a huge scapegoat for Bucks fans. I, I would say um, probably worthwhile to call him the, you know, one of the big reasons that we, we might have lost in past seasons. But I mean, at least thus far, he's been really solid. 15, I mean, 15 points in game one, that was a losing effort. 5 of 11 from the field. Um, game two, you know, 13 points on, on 12 shots. I mean, he makes one of his three three-point attempts that game. It seems like a more efficient game. Seven assists in that one. And then game three, 14 points, eight assists, five rebounds. I, I mean, the thing for me with Eric Bledsoe is, obviously we all know that how much he matters defensively. And I think he's taken the charge in game two and three 
of leading the intensity. I mean, he's looked like a, a demon out there fighting over screens, just getting up in people's shirts all the time, smartly switching, helping off to to tag a role man or, or guard, you know, help off to get his paws in 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 a, in, a, in a big man's way, so then he can't really be as fluid with his um, with the ball. So I don't know. Eric Bledsoe defensively has brought all the intensity, and I think offensively is doing. If he was basically like this the entire postseason, I think Bucks fans would be, you know, I would say pretty happy. He goes, you know, he'll go off for one game where he scores like 24 or something. Um, and if he happens to hit his threes, then that would be great. But, I mean, he's averaging a good amount of points on decent efficiency. We still get the – we're going to get the boneheaded early shot clock shot every game. We're going to get the – the yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get the jump in the air and throw at the virtual fan. We all know it. We all know it's coming. It's just part of the Eric Bledsoe experience. Sometimes I wish he would just do it all. Like maybe Bud could script the first two plays for that, where he just like throws it out of bounds, <laughs> and then he takes a really early shot clock three, and then he, he's out of his system. But I mean, overall, I, just kudos to this guy for one coming back from COVID-19 playing in the bubble. I have no idea how that's affecting him. Maybe it is affecting him still. Um, and then two, just being a, a consistent player who, I mean, at this stage of his career, I don't think he's going to be like the Eric Bledsoe of old, but like if he's playing like this, uh, I, I think all Bucks fans are pretty content. Yeah, he has not been, he was not the reason the Bucks lost game one. So that I want to come out there and say right now, he was, like I said, he was good. He was really great for a two, three minute stretch right after halftime. And then he kind of tailed off like the rest of the team. So Bledsoe has not been the reason Milwaukee lost game one. And I think in games two and three, he's doing exactly what we're asking him to do. We don't want him taking the second or third most shots on the team. If he takes the fourth most, great. Perfect. <laughs> but we don't want him taking more shots than Chris and Brooke. So if Eric Bledsoe can do it at a semi-efficient efficient rate, great. His defense, we all knew, was going to be good, and it was going to be something that was going to be an asset come playoff time. And I just think he's playing within himself. I don't think he's trying to do too much. I th- and I think that was the big issue the last two years, where in that first series against Boston, he tried doing everything, and he gets burned by Rozier. So now he wants to go out and prove a point. It was just a capitulation on his own. And then the next year, he was good enough against Detroit. He was fine against Boston and against Toronto. I think it was, again, trying to do too much because Giannis is doing it all, and Chris is trying to do a lot, but he's also being guarded by Kawhi while also guarding Kawhi. It just throws him off. Brooke can't hit a shot. Everyone is, you know, Brogdon is not really. It just felt like he may have felt like he had to step up and do more. And now this year, he's playing within himself. I don't think – I think the less we notice Eric Bledsoe's boneheaded plays, the better. And, again, he's going to get the – two or three seconds of the shot clock three. I think that's more of Bud empowering a lot of people to shoot when they have the chance instead of looking at the real, more looking at the realistic plan. And yeah, he's been really good. And I think he's been someone that if you get this blood, so for the rest of the playoffs, you'd be okay with it. I don't think there's any big complaints. Um, I think he's doing everything that we're asking of him. Just and we, I think we said with our expectations either early at the beginning of the season or right before COVID, we just said don't have a train wreck of a playoff series. And so far, <laughs> so good. <laughs> well, one guy who uh, we certainly don't want to see this guy for the rest of the playoffs is Chris Middleton, uh, and I think we need to we need to talk about him. Game three, seventeen points, 
seven of 17. He had some of those like, you know, dribble through his legs, step back threes that swish, you know, swish look really beautiful. Um, but game two was one of the worst games I've seen him play probably ever. Looked completely disengaged, one of eight from the field. Didn't feel like the Bucks, you know, he could even find his spot, let alone like get a decent shot up. I, I was not sure what was going on with that one. Maybe he was sick or something. Um, but that was a pretty horrific performance from him. And overall, he has not found the rhythm at all in this series so far. How concerned are you about Chris Middleton? I, if I put it on a scale of one to ten, I'm at a seven. Okay. Because <laughs> it may be good enough to get through. How he's playing may it be enough for the Bucks to get past the Magic, and it should be enough for the Bucks to get past the Magic. But you're likely facing Miami the next round, and if he's struggling against, you know, James Ennis, I don't want to know what's going to happen when, you know, James Johnson and Jimmy Butler. And Jay Crowder are on him because they're going to be much more physical. And I mean, I think they'll probably be equal physicality than James Ennis, but it's still going to be a lot of players. And then if you get to the next round, then you're looking at OG Anunoby, you're looking at Norm Powell, then you're looking at those guys that pretty much gave him difficulties last year. So I don't know. I don't think Chris Middleton will ever be as bad as he was in game two because that might be the worst I've seen Chris Middleton in a Bucks jersey. Yeah, I, I can't think of many games that he was worse. And especially after that game one where it, it was one of those where, okay, game one was bad. Turn around to game two. Game two was worse. And <laughs> you know it's bad when Gary Wolfel has a tweet and you agree with it. <laughs> when Gary Wolfel saying you need to play like a star, like you're paid. <laughs> And you have to sit there and agree with Gary Wolfel. You're not doing well. You're <laughs> terrible. And I don't, I'm going to take over for Riley because I know Riley would be slamming on Chris right now. But you are the second – you're the highest paid player. And you're the second guy on this Bucks team. And you are getting outplayed by the likes of Gary Clark Jr., James Ennis, DJ, obviously. Mark. You're being played off the floor. If I had to do a power ranking of players, I don't know if Chris is even in the top 10 right now, just based off of how bad he is. And if this was Jason Tatum, I would be slandering him just as much. He was slandering Jason Tatum after the Bucks' first bubble game when he was, you know, like four of 18. Actually, he might have been worse than that. But yeah, it's the same thing where you need to show up at the very least hit some threes going one of eight is inexcusable looking that disengaged is inexcusable and he's got to turn it around or Milwaukee has absolutely no chance of even competing with Miami let alone beating them yeah that that's been the argument for me like all credit to James Ennis solid defender it's been in this is in Kawhi yeah yeah <laughs> like, c- come on like I don't want to I don't want to hear this stuff about like you can't get to your spots or like you're not making shots like you're a dude who just needs to – you've been able to post up on the elbow all freaking year, and you just turn around and nail your shots. That's what you've been doing all year. There's no reason James Ennis should be the guy that suddenly stops you. You've done it against far better defenders. There's a reason that Chris Middleton you know, took a leap this year. A lot, All of us were talking – I mean, his shot chart is green across the board. He's been nailing just about everything in sight. He's been nailing tough shots. He's supposed to be the guy who – if the Bucks' offense is stilted, I mean, theoretically, he's the perfect playoff guy if the Bucks' offense is going because he can actually just get his own shot from the elbow. Like, I mean, he's just going to make the kind of jumpers that, like, 
Kobe would make for a long time. He's certainly not Kobe, but like that's the kind of shot that he would just take. He would just mm-hmm. grab it on the elbow, turn around, and and take those kind of shots. And I, I've just been very, very surprised to see him look so off kilter, especially after I mean his stat. It's not like his stat lines were awful in the bubble games, right? No, I mean, he was he, one of the only good things about the bubble games. Him yeah. and were at the very least, you could say. Brooke and Chris are playing really well in the bubble. So hopefully that should carry over even if Milwaukee can't defend to save their life. That's what that's just what has been, you know, confounding to me. And and maybe it's just I don't know, maybe he just needs to find his his rhythm. I mean, he certainly did get more of those rhythm shots in game three. Maybe that'll warm him up. Um, but you know, the I mean the fact of the matter is you're right. It there's no way that the Bucks are going to survive in future rounds if Chris Middleton is playing like this because uh you know, he's, he's he's supposed to be the second best player. He's still been getting like a good amount of assists per game, but re- really the Bucks need to rely on him to make really tough shots that deflate the defense, make threes that open up the offense for Giannis and Brooke to be able to thrive inside. Uh, and if he's not making those, then the, the Bucks offense is going to be, you know, in tough, face some tough sledding in future places. It's around. going to be hope that every shooter shoots really, really well. And nothing for this past season has given us any indication of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the longer, the more Chris struggles, the more we have to rely on guys like Pat Connaughton having like a five for eight, three point game. And the chances of that continuing to happen in future rounds are significantly smaller than the chances that we should have for Chris Middleton, just continue to be a, a kind of guy who's reliable and can score consistently. Yeah. All right. Come on, Chris. Please, Chris. Do better. <laughs> yes, yeah, please. That's all we need from you. That's, please, please do that. Um, okay. Any other players that you're concerned about to this point in the playoffs? It's it's tough for me because I want to I wanna have us like talk about projecting out a little since we're doing like a weekly thing, but I, I've had to I've had to slam the brakes on this series so much more than I thought I would have to. Um I know I I was listening to the podcast last week and I was I was. I, it seemed like you thought the Magic had a little better chance than I certainly gave them. Um, so I don't know. I've I've had to kind of readjust my expectations a little. I figured the Magic would win a game because they would shoot pretty well, or Milwaukee would play terrible. And it happened in Game One, which I think was the bigger issue. And I think a lot of people are expecting Milwaukee to win. You know, the first two or three games, and the Magic maybe get one. But it would be later in the series would have already more or less been done and over with. But it happens. But Magic winning game one, and now everyone's like on edge because it's like we don't know. Now that the Bucks have a two-one series lead, that's great. But if Milwaukee loses on Monday, then we're back to square one. I feel like, <laughs> and I so I figured the Magic would win a game, but I thought it would have been yesterday when the Bucks already had two wins locked up. I think I'm concerned. I don't know if I want to say concerned, but I'm still not fully convinced on George Hill and Dante's play of the bubble and in the series. And I don't know. I mean, Hill has done better shooting wise, but I'm still not there where I can completely trust both of them. And especially if Eric Bledsoe were to unfortunately have a terrible game, I don't know how Milwaukee necessarily recovers and fills that void. So I'm still there were signs of improvement in game two from George Hill and there were signs of improvement in game three from Dante. And I just want to, it's, but it's not the same two players that we saw pre COVID that were like George Hill was arguably a six man of the year candidate. 
and Dante looked to be someone that was making that leap. So those are slight concerns, but it's still lingering in the back of my head. Yeah, game game three obviously helps you know push a lot of concerns aside. Uh, given the Bucks finally looked a little bit more like themselves, but I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Those are the players that both of them were even mentioned. I think in like Zach Lowe's podcast as potential sixth man of the year candidates, Dante and George Hill. We've relied on them to try and fill some of the playmaking void from Malcolm Brogdon. Um, and I, I mean, last year in the playoffs, George Hill was. Uh, a man on a mission. I mean, he was like dribbling through dudes. I think in the Celtics series, just like schooling them. He was the best player in the Celtics series. Yeah. I mean, he would just slam, like go up for skying slam dunks. It was insane. I I don't know where he, you know, drank from the fountain of youth in that series, but um, I mean, you did, you certainly saw signs of life. He looked really not good in the seeding games, but it looked a lot better in, in game two and game three. Uh, But I I think those are the, those are the players that you're going to need a lot more from in future rounds, especially as the rotation shortens, which I want to, I want to talk about that next as well. Is the long rotation just around one thing? Is that what you think? Yes. I think it will still, cause he's, cause Bud's going 10, 11 deep. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it goes down to nine. I don't know how much Robin Lopez is going to play moving forward. I don't know how much he's going to be able to go with Cal Corver. Because the only, and Riley and I were saying this last week, I think the only bench guys that I feel confident will play for sure is Dante and George Hill. And I don't know how much Marvin's going to play. I don't know how much Robin Lopez is going to play. If Pat Conson keeps shooting this way, then he deserves it. So that's eight. So maybe Bud goes nine. And every once in a while, he'll go 10, depending on foul trouble. But I think he's going to have to play, you know, Giannis and Chris and Brooke more minutes. And he's not going to be able to do these all-bench lineups and get away with that. So I think he'll shorten the rotation a little bit. But I still wouldn't be surprised if there's a game where 10, 11 players are playing. Maybe they only play two, three minutes. But it could I could see Bud starting to tighten up the rotation a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, the Kyle Korver thing is 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 an interesting conundrum. I think I, you know, last year in the playoffs, the Jazz, he was playing for the Jazz, and then all of a sudden, basically, just stopped playing for them in the playoffs when teams were hunting him on mismatches. Obviously, the Magic can't do that. I think we'll have a lot better idea of what his buds' feeling is for Kyle Korver in the second round when we have a team that can actually hunt him down. Yeah, I'm afraid of him being on the same court as Duncan Robinson and. Miami is supposed to just dry up every play in the book. Like, okay, Duncan Robinson is going to shoot, and Duncan Robinson is going to have a friend Van Vliet, except he's actually a good shooter, so it's not going to be surprising. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to think about that yet. Yeah. I'm just. I'm not going to think about that yet. The Robin Lopez obviously seems matchup specific. His, if we need to, I can see him going in if, like, another team has another big. But he's looked a little cooked this series. He, he's looked like he hasn't been quite up to snuff, particularly defensively. Yeah, he is someone that I figured after, if you could put him on Vucevic and it at least would be okay, but Vucevic has just torched everyone. So at that point, if Brooke and Giannis can't see the slow down, then there's no point in trying to throw Robin out there. And, you know, moving forward, there's not that many big, big centers out there. And we've seen Robin can, kind of get torched by Vucevic, by Valanciunas in the seeding game. 
you know, I don't think he's going to be the guy to put on someone like Kelly Olenek. And I don't think he's going to be the guy to put on Serge Ibaka and Marc Gasol. So I could see that being Robin started to lose his minutes more because the matchups aren't going to favor him enough to justify putting him in. Yeah, and I think, I mean, yesterday Bud went to occasionally Giannis on, on Vucevic, which is obviously, I mean, Vucevic is big, but I mean, Giannis is, is huge as well. I, th- I kind of like that matchup occasionally if we start to get Robin Lopez out of the out of the lineups, just given Giannis's ability to do a lot of the stuff that Brooke does, you know, where he's able to play the drop, pick and roll, but can hunt, you know, get back to someone who's popping so much faster than Brooke can. Uh, right. I think I think that athleticism will will benefit the Bucks a lot in future rounds. And I, I wanted to ask you because I mean Vucevic has been carving them up on the pick and pop. We've known that's kind of been a weakness of this Bucks defense for a while now. Certainly played out last year in in that game one when Al Horford um, destroyed the Bucks with you know with the Celtics. Who else in the East scares you when you think about employing that same model? <sighs> It's kind of tough. I would say Serge Ibaka and Marc Gasol. Marc Gasol scares me. Like Kelly Olynyk, I feel like Giannis, you could put Giannis on it, it'd be fine. I don't, maybe if Indiana pulls it together, Miles Turner could be that guy. Maybe, but I don't know if Indiana's going to win that series anymore. I don't think anyone in Philly is worth mentioning because even if they somehow pull off a miracle, I don't see anyone in Philly really being that threat. I guess Daniel Tice could be someone that one like one game could get Milwaukee fits, but he's more of the rebounding, screening, dirty screen guy that's going to make things annoying and draw fouls. But I don't think he's going to be the pick and pop. So yeah, Marcus All and Serge Ibaka, I guess, are the only two that really pop in my head as they scare me. Like if they have the ball, and that shot's going up. I feel like it's going in. I totally agree. I think Vucevic is actually. You know, you mentioned like Kelly Olynyk and, and Tice. Vucevic is interesting in the fact that he certainly can make threes. He's not like an elite three-point shooter, but his game is so much more well-rounded than like a guy like Olynyk or Tice, where like the only thing that really scares you is that they can make a three. Like they can pop. They can pop effectively. Vucevic, it's like an Al Horford almost. It's like yes, Vucevic yeah. and Al Horford kind of that same territory of they can hit it, but they're not consistent enough that it's a threat it's just enough that you have to at least be aware that it could be a possibility and Vooch is much better inside like he has a much better like if he if he doesn't want if he wants to instead of pop he wants to roll uh, I mean that's where he could actually be effective and like I'm not scared of Kelly Olenek or Daniel Dice really rolling yeah. the rim. Um, but Gasol and Ibaka Definitely. Gasol is like one of the, I mean, Gasol's what a huge reason the Bucks lost last year. He's incredibly smart defensively, was able to make the threes when the Bucks gave it to him. Um, he, he's really the guy in the East who, uh, who would freak me out in terms of using employing this, another team employing the same strategy. Yeah. I, I think Marcus all that, because we saw in the first two games, he couldn't hit a shot and Milwaukee was able to take advantage of it. And then once those threes were starting to fall, that's when Milwaukee really became unraveled. And defensively still going to be there. And again, him and Serge Ibaka are two guys that Gasol has the strength and enough speed to stay with Giannis Ibaka. and definitely has both as well. So those are the two guys where in terms of bigs, those are the ones that I think Milwaukee could handle a little bit better because they don't have a Kawhi Leonard where you can just stick him on someone and you've basically 
make them useless. Mm-hmm. They don't have that level of defender, so I think it makes I think Milwaukee has better odds of being able to attack Bokasol and Ibaka, but it, it's still going to be a challenge. It's still going to be grinding it out, and you're gonna have to work for all those points. Yeah, hundred percent. Anything else? Um, I don't know. Concerns, questions, lingering thoughts about the Bucks thus far. Honestly, I have not. So game one and game two, the refs were whistle oh, yeah. friendly. <laughs> what to say? Game three didn't see that way, and I don't know. And the but the weirdest thing is, I've not had as much of a gripe with the refs in terms of whistle, like the whistle for Giannis. I think the refs have been pretty good with in terms of roughing Giannis and roughing everyone else. It's just they seem to be very whistle happy. So does that continue? I don't know, but it's definitely an interesting point where, you know, normally we would have at least three or four days where we're all just berating the refs and saying they're terrible and blah, 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 blah. But I feel like other than game one, that was more frustration of everything else that was going on. And then game two was still a, well, between the refs and Milwaukee not being able to put this to bed, this has been a very tense game. So I don't know moving forward that's going to still be the case as well. I don't think it's a concern. It's just something that I noticed because I feel like we we as Bucks fans always seem to point to the rest whenever they screw up with Giannis, and that hasn't been the case as much in the series. Yeah, I think they've done a decent job on him. I, I certainly think Orlando maybe benefited a little bit from their guys forcing contact, which is, which is fine on shots. I, I think game one and two, they did that. I, in game three, there were like, I think two, maybe two Terrence Ross shots where he like shot a three and tried to kind of fall down and and the refs weren't falling for it, which was semi-encouraging for me. But I think you're to, I, I agree that the refs are something to watch. And I, I, I try to kind of forget about them in terms of my analysis of the game, since it's so, it can switch so much. And it's always a really difficult thing to even comment on because I've never done it. I think I would be an awful ref. Uh, I think I would be swayed so much by making wrong a wrong call one time, and I would be like, "All right, well, I got to make it up to the other team now." Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I definitely no, I cannot be a ref. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe in volleyball, that is the only one that I could be a ref and feel competent on. <laughs> yeah, I also would like get really scared when they would argue with me. I'd be like, "Look, you're right. I'm so sorry. I know. I, I know. I screwed that call up." Yeah, football would football would be the toughest sport to rough because I feel like those guys would just immediately charge me like, all right, all right, all right, sorry. <laughs> There's a little bit of contact, and I don't, I forget that football's a contact sport. <laughs> uh, okay, all right, let's talk a little bit about the just real quickly touch on the state of the Eastern Conference playoffs right now. Um, so we're recording this Sunday. By the time people hear this, the Sixers maybe got swept swept by the Celtics. Raptors could have maybe swept the Nets as well. Uh, both of those series basically seem in hand. So it seems like the next round is probably going to be Celtics versus Raptors. Um, and then the Bucks' next opponent likely is going to be the Heat. All of those teams are up uh, 3-0 in their series. Kind of been getting routed. It's really, I think this shows what the bubble can do because there's, even if it's going to game three, you don't get the momentum shift of switching venues. You don't get any of that. It's just like, you just got to go back out and play. And I think that's, I think that's coming to fruition in these other series. Yeah. And, it's interesting with the Miami-Indiana because I didn't expect Indiana to get outplayed as badly as they have. And, I mean, game three, they at least had it close and put up a fight. But it seems like Miami had hit a gear, and I don't know if that's just the Pacers. I don't want to say lack of talent, but the t- drop in talent. Because, I mean, Oladipo is a very good player. 
but I don't think out of any of these teams in Eastern Conference, he is their best player. Like, I don't think if you put him on Toronto, he's their best player. I don't think if you put him on Philly, he's their best player. So that I think that talent gap with the top end is starting to show for Indiana. Philly, they've always had issues with Boston, and this is just highlighting it. And honestly, if Brett Brown still has a job going into next year, I will laugh my ass off because clearly Philly don't know what they're doing then because he's got – I don't know how you can sit there and watch this team and think, yes, the way to fix this is to give a max contract to Tobias Harris. And also let's not look at the coach that is supposed to find a way to make, take advantage of these two players that they have and they can't do it. I mean, granted one's a coward and won't shoot, which doesn't help anything, but I, I don't know what you do if you're Philly. You have to at least try a new coach and hope for the best. I'm not saying it's going to be Jason Kidd-esque, but it's, They've only won what one, two series, like they've won. They've gotten yeah. past the first round last year, lost to Toronto. They got past the first round the year before, lost to Boston, and I think they even. But they weren't that convincing. They just played teams that were not as good as them. Um, yeah. Toronto looks like the defending champs that they are. Nothing surprising there. Brooklyn's talent or lack thereof, obviously, being exposed. And I think had Milwaukee not won, lost game one, I think we'd be looking at all sweeps in the series. And it is interesting with the lack of momentum where you're not playing in front of the opposing fans. They might get riled up. Um, I can only imagine, you know, Orlando, if they were playing in Orlando game three, they would have been extremely fired up for it if they had won the game one. But at the same time, I think Milwaukee would have won the first two games with ease as well. So it's interesting to see. I, I expect Philly to get swept. I expect Brooklyn to get swept. Maybe Indiana steals one. But yeah, it's. I think the top four teams in East are playing like the top four teams that they need to be in the Bucks, Heat, um, Celtics, and Raptors. Yeah, I would agree. And I, ca- I can just say um, from my, my Philly sources out here, the fans are restless. They're not feeling good. They're not feeling very happy right now. Lots of trade, Horford. Um, they seem to not – some people don't seem to understand how difficult that might be. But um, Yeah, with that contract, I don't think you're going to be able to do it well. <laughs> that's fine. I usually just kind of – I just grit my teeth and just listen. It's more fun to just listen. Uh, anyway, good luck, Sixers. Uh, the East, you're right, top four teams seem like the top four teams. Uh, that seems like the storyline so far. As long as – if the Bucks take care of business, then uh, we'll have a – well, but actually an interesting pecking order. I think coming out of this round, even if the Bucks win the next two games, I think there will be a lot of buzz over the probably all three teams, maybe more so than the Bucks. The storyline with the Bucks will be, you know, why aren't they playing like the Bucks? And the other the other teams will probably be, wow, these teams look like they, they could give the Bucks a, a run for their money. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Okay. All right, Kyle. Let's move on. Let's let's close this out with some rapid fire and then preview in the games. All right. All right. Well, wait, before we do, oh, I just realized we got to take an ad break. All right. We're going to take an ad break and then we'll do rapid fire. Okay. Stay tuned. All right. We're back. It's time for rapid fire. I'm sorry for teasing everyone there. Okay. I wrote these up. Let me see. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. First one, preferred cheap beer in college. Michelob Golden Ultra Light. The Golden's. We're great. But Golden was a really good beer. I remember I had that when I visited my cousin one time after I would normally drink um, much worse. And I thought that that is such a treat. 
Is it's so great. And it's really just like a Minnesota Northwest Wisconsin thing. Cause when I tried, when I would be home for the summers, I could not find it in Southeast Wisconsin. You're, you are 100% right that I would always get it when I would visit him in Eau Claire. So you are totally right. Okay. Next one. Favorite piece of bucks and or other team memorabilia. Oh, this is tough. Um, I really enjoy the Bengal bobbleheads that they used to give out. I think like 10 years ago, I still have one of them, but the Bengal bobbleheads were always the coolest thing to me because it actually looked like Bango. So <laughs> I, I had two or three of them and I lost one and another one broke when I was moving. So I still have one left, but Bengal bobbleheads were, I think it just was like, it like reminds me of childhood. So. Yeah. The Bango Bango does seem like a good, model for a bobblehead because they're never going to look that good. They're certainly not going to look like a person. So a yeah. Bengal bobblehead seems like a smart choice. All right. Next one. Do you enjoy camping? Not really. <laughs> like I'm not, I don't like it. I'll do it <laughs> if I absolutely have to, but not really something I'm going to make a priority. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Favorite cartoon growing up. Ooh. Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm going to do early childhood. I'll go Rugrats. That was always a go-to. And Recess was another. Those were my two. Okay. Do you have a, a show that you would just turn on? Let's say, okay, it's the end of the night. You're like, okay, Emma's asleep. Um, Sterling's asleep. What if I just want to like chill out and just relax and watch a show? What would that show be? Hmm. I would say Scrubs. Scrubs. Okay. Easy show to pick up. I think I've watched enough times that I can pick anywhere and know exactly what's going on and what season it is and what the dynamics of the characters are. So I would, yeah, Scrubs would be, Scrubs would be the pick. That's cool. Mine would be Gilmore Girls, and I've waited about an hour to bring this up, and I just wanted to talk real briefly about some of the slander you spit last night on Twitter about Rory Gilmore, a fine, outstanding citizen who clearly didn't have the finest role model, a great maternal figure, but she probably didn't make the best decisions her whole life. And yes, it is damning that like two out of the three relationships Rory had, she wound up ruining their eventual marriages. You know, that's a tough look for her. But, you know, what What do you want her to do? She had had to make tough decisions. She got into Yale. She did all this other great stuff. Okay. Uh, she's a fine, outstanding, upstanding citizen. Uh, she did her, you know, she she stole a yacht and then she went and picked up garbage for it. Oh, she that's just, the least of my problems with stealing okay. a yacht. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Let, me, let me start with this. You'd willingly sleep with a married man in Dean. Dean is the worst. We can all agree on it. Dean sucks. Oh, okay. I disagree. This hard disagree. Oh, anyway. my God. Dean is the worst. Dean should know not to cheat on his wife, but at the same time, he is still <laughs> yeah. heartbroken. Rory knew he was married. Like, she damn well knew he was married and still was like, yes, I'm going to sleep with this guy. No, don't do that. And then when you flash forward to the, the year in a life, whatever, that train wreck. <laughs> She continuously has this affair with Logan, who she knows is engaged, and she gets upset when he's like, oh, yeah, she's moving. My fiance's moving in. And then she's, like, upset, like, where am I supposed to stay when I visit London? 
but maybe you just like need to stop like going over and trying to continue this affair with this guy that is like, engaged. Like she was old. She was 32. She's damn well old enough to know that wasn't the right choice. Maternal misgivings of Lorelai or not. <laughs> I don't like, well, She was really an adult. She was, <laughs> Logan did not love his fiance. Clearly. I'm not saying Logan is also not in the wrong. I'm just saying that should have been a conversation Rory should have had with Logan to say, hey, you need to end this if we're going to continue this. Logan should have broken off, but Rory definitely should have not continued doing it. It's That is just two of my issues with Rory. She's also someone that <laughs> because her, because Lorelai, while decent enough parent to like try to empower her daughter, didn't really give her much in terms of facing adversity. So Rory had had almost everything more or less given to her. Yes, she was smart. Yes, she worked for it. But at the same time, she's still someone that throughout her whole life got stuff given to her, got away with a lot of things. And then she starts getting into children. And then she realizes, oh, the level is a little bit higher. She struggles with that and eventually gets through it. Then she gets to Yale and one piece of bad of criticism from Logan's dad, Mitchum Huntsberger, who's probably the biggest douche I've ever I've, I've met him. So I want to punch him, but he gives Roy the feedback of "You're just not like I don't think you're gonna make it." And all the points that he gave Roy were very valid. She was not, you know, a go getter. She did not take the initiative. She was more passive. She was. Again, a really good assistant, but not someone that would take charge. All of it was valid criticism. And Rory goes into this panic. I And of course, again, first time she's really handling criticism. Because every other time, everyone's like, oh, no, you're great. You're the best. And no one actually told her, yeah, you're not that good. She also had the situation in Yale where the advisor was like, maybe drop this class. And she's like... What are you talking like? I know, like she just never was able to bat, like fight through and get through adversity. And stealing the yacht is the lowest of problems. And she's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna drop out of Yale. I'm not going back." It's I understand but that. Then she went back. When she first, went back. When I first watched it with Emma, I thought her drop out of Yale was like ridiculous, and she needed to do better. But now that I've I slightly get it a little bit more because you do need maybe you do need like tied to just like reset and figure it out but I, maybe it's also because it would be one where if I had a chance to go to Yale I would not try and drop out and potentially screw that all up so Rory's just not someone that handles adversity well and makes poor choices I think that's really what it comes down to those two things that I mean those are those are valid, very valid criticisms but we're watching her emotional maturation in real time we're, we're watching her go through these things and have to reckon with her decisions granted usually doesn't really get punished for anything that she that's does the problem poorly. she doesn't well, get punished for her bad decisions yeah she, but eventually she, she, she gets sleeps back with in. Dean, <laughs> ruins that family life and no, it wasn't it right, wasn't gonna be going to Yale, see it wasn't be good it wasn't gonna be good it was clear from the outset uh like you would think uh, first place like stars hollow that she should have been like a piranha for like disturbing the balance <laughs> okay yeah i mean she chose she chose a tough small town to wreck a home in especially when the clothes are thrown out on the street um in the middle of uh like there's the a whole ass scene and yeah. i feel like dean gets slandered for it which he should but like no one 
no one slanders Rory for it. Everyone's just like, okay, whatever. All right. Well, which also she was terrible in her relationship with Dean, just basically emotionally cheating on him with Jess. Like, that's what bugged me about it. That's what bugged me about it. You know, just, Dean was a great, just humble at home dude. Almost got into community college, um, and Rory just left him on the doorstep. That's true. Rory and see, Rory fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, you just, I just talked myself into your point. <laughs> all right. So okay. there's my Rory Slater. She's not the worst character in Gilmore Girls, but she sucks. Who is the worst character? Oh, God. Oh, boy. There's Lorelai's not great. <laughs> okay. All right. We got to move on. No, we got to move on. We can't do it anymore. Okay. There, yeah. <laughs> I will still go with Logan Huntsberger's dad is still the worst because that is a everyone knows that type of guy, the yep. rich, arrogant white dude that you just want to punch <laughs> in the face and hope that he gets parasited. Yeah, <laughs> he's oh, that's good. Okay, we'll end on that. All right, previewing <laughs> previewing the games. Bucks are up two one in the series. Uh, by the time people are listening, this game four might have happened, but game four is Monday at twelve thirty. Central and then game five, we got the tip time. Always lovely 3 p.m. Central tip time. Thank you, NBA, for always giving us great times to watch these games. All right, what's your prediction for what the Bucks will go this week? There they could will, be two more games, but they're they will close the series winning both gentlemen's sweep, and we will feel a little bit better about the team. Yeah, I'm 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 kind of in the same boat. I I, I think it's gonna be a gentleman's sweep now. I just think the magic. Even if they get like Aaron Gordon or Michael Carter Williams back, I don't think that's the shot in the arm they need. Aaron Gordon might even like worse, make their chances worse offensively because he might like try and take possessions away from Vucevic. Um, It'll remind me of when Blake Griffin came back last year, where you try and do it to maybe give that jolt of energy and it just doesn't work because yeah. he's not 100%. And I think that might be the same with Aaron Gordon. I mean, Michael Carter Williams coming back doesn't really help Orlando <laughs> at all on offense. It might help them defensively, but not on offense. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. All right, well, I'm going 2-0. Let's hope the Bucks close this out. And in the meantime, definitely stay tuned to brewhoop.com. Lots of great content. I know uh, Mitchell's been putting together some great narrative pieces after each game to kind of get people caught up on the tenor of the series. Yours was a great one. Yours was like, you're, that's how so many fans felt. You put that was, that was, you just put emotion into words. It was great. It was raw emotions that when I was typing it. So I will say it was I was everything was live. All yeah. the emotions were live. If I had done that, would have been a Periscope. If I was still doing those, that's the that's the beauty of brew hoop and blogging. That's the kind of that's the content people want. That's how people felt. Kyle um, Brian's got a Bucks dictionary piece he's bringing back. Um, so definitely stay tuned to brewhoop.com for that. That's always great because I I don't know half the stuff that he that the terms that he says. So it's cool to get a little insight into technical knowledge and then uh, follow us on Twitter at brew hoop. Kyle's uh, behind the wheels at that. Uh, and then I guess stay tuned for the podcast. I think Riley's out next week, finishing up his move. Uh, we might have a, a special guest from the brew hoop staff joining us, but in the meantime, stay safe and go bucks. Mm-hmm.